financially, you've done it right all your life. You've paid your bills, you've paid your taxes, you've saved and invested for the future, and you've done well. But market dips have done some damage, and lately, you have your doubts about our government's policies. How will you maintain your lifestyle, your health, and your personal freedoms that you cherish? Welcome to Wealth Guardians with Doug Ray, where it's all about the health, wealth, and freedom you need to live life your way all the way. Stand by for strategies you can use to turn your retirement dreams into reality. Now, here's the host of Wealth Guardians, Doug Ray. 94.5 WPTI, the Piedmont's news talk and sports station. This is the Wealth Guardian Show. My name is Doug Ray. Conventional wisdom has it that after the recent recession, economic life and asset markets will return to normal. Normal? What is normal? The normal of the late 20th century existed due to unique historical circumstances that will not be repeated. The new normal will be one of slower growth, higher inflation, and lackluster returns. The main reasons the developed world is on the downstroke of three great historical cycles are debt, demographics, and democratization. Author Philip Romero traces this trajectory and recommends surprising and counterintuitive investments that until recently weren't published by Wall Street, but can help those planning for the day they retire to protect your nest egg in the rougher seas ahead. Uh, Dr. Philip Romero is going to be our guest today. He is a finance professor at the University of Oregon, and he has written the book, Your Macroeconomic Edge and What Hedge Funds Really Do. But before we get to the good doctor, I want to always, as I try to do on this show, to open it up by thanking all of our uh, vet military members who are serving on active duty, uh, thanking them for all that they do for us, and they go in harm's way every day, so we just can't thank them enough. Let's uh, do a little market recap over the week. We've had a, kind of an interesting week. We've had a, um, a sixth Hindenburg omen occur uh, on Tuesday's market, and that's a bit unprecedented. You know, if you remember uh, a couple shows ago, I had Tim Wood on, and Tim's uh, five DNA markers that he's discovered that has occurred at every single market top since 1896. We have uh, three of them uh, locked in place right now, and uh, uh, he I was talking with him the other day, and he says uh, the fourth and fifth are quickly starting a setup, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see over the next week or two how this market shakes out, if it can uh, if it can turn back up and, and go uh, – go back up or if it actually breaks down and, and the Dow goes uh, uh, down to meet the Dow transports, which would give us a uh, Dow theory uh, change signal. But this week we had on the daily chart, we had the, the 50-50 sell signal when the uh, uh, 50 moving average was broken by the Dow and RSI 50 was broken as well. So it needs to hold the 17.5 level, and if it breaks that, then the next support's around 17,000. And if it breaks that on the downside, then we go back to uh, October of last year's lows at around 16.5 or 16,000, somewhere in there. And that would set up Tim's DNA markers. So there you have it. Stay tuned. If those DNA markers do break, then I will post those on our website at www.thewealthguardians.com. I will also email everybody in our database that we have uh, the five DNA markers in place that indicate a market top is in and that we're in go- going into the next 
bear trend. Well, this week we've done some uh, some workshops uh, in uh, in the area on, and basically it, it, it resolves around not just Social Security. We've been promoting a lot of the Social Security optimization over the last couple of years, but now I want to trend more into tax um, efficient planning using Social Security as well. You know, typically when I start a talk out, I'll ask the audience, I'll say, do you believe taxes in the future are going to be higher than they are now? And I'll tell you, I don't think I've had anybody say to me they think they're going to be lower. And I have to agree with them. And I I think our good professor who we're going to have on in a few minutes will probably voice the same response. But everybody believes taxes are going up. Now, when I got started in this business back in the late 80s, they taught us back then that a retiree would have lower taxes because they weren't working anymore. Their income was lower. But what if we're staring at higher tax rates in the future? So one of the things I want you to think about doing is creating as much tax-free income in your retirement portfolio as possible. I love to talk about Roth accounts, Roth IRA accounts, because the monies grow tax-free and they come out tax-free. Now, there's two ways to create a Roth account. You can contribute or you can convert. And I want to focus in on the conversion part of it today. You know, a lot of people don't like the conversion process because they have to pay tax on that conversion. Well, there's a couple things you can do. Let's take a look at the 1040 return and how we're actually taxed. If we're talking about a married couple, 65 years and older, you've got a couple things going in your favor on this return. You both have a $4,000 tax exemption. That's 8000 per couple, and then a standard deduction of $15,100. That's $23,100 of income that's tax-exempt every single year. Now think about it. You could convert $23,100 a year tax-free if you wanted to. Let's do some quick math here. Let's say your life expectancy is 85 which typically is in this country. So if you converted every year $23,000 times 20, now you've got $462,000 that you have sheltered from the greedy hands of the IRS. So let me ask you this. Who can spend your money better, your family or the IRS? I think that's a no-brainer, right? That's one strategy we talk about. The other one is a bracket bump technique. That's where we convert enough of your IRA every year to bump you up to, not into, but to the next higher tax bracket. Now, we're not going to get all your IRA converted at one time doing that, but over a course of years, we can get your IRA converted to Roth at the most tax-efficient means possible. Now, doesn't that sound like something you might like to employ, I think you ought to at least give yourself a chance to sit down and take a look at it. I would be more than happy to sit down and take a look at your situation. We'll plug all your numbers in. We'll get your tax rates. We'll plug them into my proprietary software, and I'll tell you exactly how much monies that you can convert every single year and either avoid or minimize the taxation on it. And, oh, by the way, I know an IRA custodian out there that will actually pay the conversion tax on a third of your IRA to Roth conversion. Now, 
I'm not going to tell you the name of that custodian. For that, you're going to have to come and see me. So give us a call. Make an appointment to come in. It's 336-391-3409. Also, you can go to Facebook. We have a Facebook page and like us there. And always our website is open for you at www.thewealthguardians.com. Now, next week, I've got the whole show to myself. So next week, we're going to talk about, we're going to go dive deep into creating tax-free income, Roth conversions, and some other little-known techniques on how to create that tax-free income in retirement. So I want you to pay uh, special attention and, and tune into the show next week, next Saturday at 2 o'clock uh, for, for that. Well, without further ado, let's get our, our guest in today, uh, Professor Philip Romero, a finance professor at the University of Oregon and author of The Macronomic Edge and What Hedge Funds Really Do is with us. A little bit about him. Uh, Philip Romero is professor of finance at the University of Oregon, as I said, and he was the business dean from 1999 to 2004. During the Cold War, he was a defense policy specialist at the RAND Corporation, where he worked for the Secretary of Defense, the CIA, the U.S. Air Force, and Army. He was an advisor to President Bush's 2000-2004 campaigns and the former chief economist to the governor of California. And as I said before, Dr. Romero is the co-author of six books, and he earned a Ph.D. and an M.A. in policy analysis from the RAND Graduate School. Dr. Romero, welcome. Thanks for having me, Doug. Well, I'm, I'm like I said, uh, you know, before we got the show going, we were talking. I am really looking forward to to the conversation we're going to have today. Well, I think you and I are you and I are going to agree about just about everything regarding Roth, uh, just from from your uh, what you said before. You know, I, I just don't understand why more people don't have a Roth. I mean, it just uh, it, it's it's a no brainer. There's a field called behavioral economics, which is which I'm sure you're aware of, which is where where psychologists study how people actually behave economically as opposed to how pointy-headed economists like me theorize they behave. And one of the things they, that, that psychologists find is people defer pain, and they'll defer pain uh, e- even, if it co- even if it causes much more pain later. And that's my take on Roth conversions. People are just so unwilling to pay taxes now, they're willing to, they avoid them even if it means that they're going to pay triple taxes 20 years in the future. It's that. It's also, I think, a, a function of their CPAs are telling them not to do it because the CPA, you know, God bless them, they're so focused on, on eliminate, eliminating tax. They got those blinders on and they just can't see into the future. And I think you and I are going to talk about that in the, in the next coming segments about uh, taxes and debt and where, where you think this, this economy and this, this government is headed. Uh, but we're going to have to uh, wait till the next segment because we are up against a break. You are listening to The Wealth Guardians with Doug Ray on 94.5 WPTI, the Piedmont's News Talk and Sports Station. WPTI, the Piedmont's News Talk and Sports Station. This is the Wealth Guardian Show. My name is Doug Ray, where it's all about the health, wealth, and freedom. You need to live life your way. I want to remind you, we have the show now on Facebook, so uh, love for you to go there and and like us on Facebook. We also have on our website lots of information 
Uh, it's at www.thewealthguardians.com. Today's guest is Philip Romero, professor of finance at the University of Oregon. He is the author of The Macroeconomic Edge. So, Dr. Romero, you, yes, argue, you argue in your book, The Macroeconomic Edge, that the good old days in investing are gone. Tell us why. Yeah, sure. I, uh, I started, I think a lot of authors will tell you that their, their books are basically based on their own personal knowledge journeys, and that was the case for me. I really didn't start uh, thinking about my own personal finances until the 1990s when I finished graduate school. And I drank the Kool-Aid of the conventional wisdom. Yeah. Uh, uh, No-load equity mutual funds, uh, buy and hold, don't try to market time, uh, uh, slowly change your asset allocation from stocks to bonds as you approach retirement, all kinds of things that the, I'm sure you talk about on the show all the time. But I also have a strong interest in history, and I began thinking about the dynamics of the world economy in the late 20th and early 21st centuries, and I began to say to myself, uh, a lot of the conditions that led to that conventional wisdom I mentioned a moment ago are not going to be repeated in the early 21st century. And you mentioned when you introduced me the three big ones, what I call the three Ds, debt, demographics, and, and democratization. And let me talk about each of those briefly. Uh, debt is the notion that uh, the entire developed world has borrowed uh, far more than they can reasonably be expected to pay back. And if you want to get a sense of how this slow-moving tragedy uh, plays out, just look at, at Greece over the last few weeks. Uh, um, when governments have, uh, and they turbocharge growth through debt, but now it's, you know, the party's over, and now it's, now it's time for the hangover. And paying that debt back will, uh, first they will try to raise taxes, and you talked about that earlier also, in the earlier segment also. And what they'll find, of course, is that ma- magically when you raise tax rates, you don't get as much tax revenue as you expect because higher taxes cause people to work less. So then government falls back on, on the only remaining thing, which is to monetize the debt by debasing the currency, by, by inflation. Uh, so I argue that debt is going to lead to both slower growth as a result of higher tax rates and higher inflation. Um, demographics is the base for everything I've just said. The baby boom provided a huge demographic dividend to the developed world in the late 20th century because you had millions of young new workers entering the workforce and driving economic growth. Well, fast forward to the present, those formerly young workers are now retiring, and they've gone from being economic engines to being economic cabooses. They're now dependent upon the economy and will be slowing it down. And democratization is that at, with the end of the Cold War, Three billion new capitalists entered the world economy, places like China and India, and they started selling the only thing they had, which is unskilled labor. Uh, but as uh, their aspirations grew and as they began to enter the global middle class, they began competing for middle class occupations. And that um, the competition that's come through the democratization and, glo- and globalization is, uh, uh, is suppressing incomes for a variety of middle-class occupations throughout the developed world. So you put all that together, and that's why I say I believe that 
the late 20th century was unique historical periods, probably not to be repeated within our lifetimes. I think this is the normal, what we're in now is the, truly the new normal, and it's going to be a period of slower growth and probably eventually higher inflation. If you just joined us, uh, our guest today is uh, Dr. Philip Romero, the professor of finance at the University of Oregon and author of uh, Your Macroeconomic Edge. Uh, well, Dr. Romero, then, who's to blame for this mess? Is, is there anybody to blame? Oh, um, I suppose. I mean, with democracies, of course, the answer is if it's a true democracy, and certainly in America it is, uh, the answer is everybody. I mean, I mean, if you... If you vote in congressmen and presidents who promise you things and then pay for it with, with resources that they're, they're stealing from future generations, then, you know, then you're to blame because you, because you voted for them in the first place. And in America, the classic, the, you know, the classic political dynamic is, I hate Congress, but I love my congressman. Uh, so uh, um, uh, I, uh, and, and, part, and, and I guess even more fundamentally, I uh, if you believe that, if you believe that high birth rates in the decades after World War II were good, and low birth rates thereafter caused the effects I just described, I suppose you could somehow blame the mothers of America for not having enough babies anymore. But that's just not reasonable because, typically, as societies get richer and women become liberated, they have fewer kids. That's just sort of a natural demographic dynamic. So, so most of it, I think, is is just natural effects of economic growth and, and economic progress that there's nobody to blame. It's, uh, it, it'd be like blaming gravity. You know, I can remember distinctly um, on this radio show back in the um, 2008 time period when, when, um, when everybody was scared to death and uh, the government started the TARP program and, and the bailouts and all this other stuff and Remember the uh, the phrase "shovel ready projects." Oh, of course. I, I uh, you know, I was saying, yeah, that's that's what we need. But then we quickly realized there was no shovel ready projects, yeah, right. and it was all just a. I don't know if I want to call it a scam or a hoax, but I've become I, I, so distrustful. I have to say of of any any government policy anymore when it comes to the economies and economics. Well, I, uh, I mean, I, I, you, as someone who's worked in government, Doug, I will, I will completely validate your, your, your very healthy skepticism. It's very appropriate. Uh, what I have to say, though, is although I'm a Republican and a conservative, the things I've been saying have been very bipartisan since. You know, they're not unique to one party or any one government. And I've read quite a bit about economic policy making in the Obama administration in the early months of in, in late 08 and 09, and they were as surprised as anybody at the lack of shovel-ready projects. Uh, Obama really had great plans to, for example, remake the electrical grid, and then he found out that that uh, policies meant that any dollar he spent it, or that he tried to spend it would be two years before it would lead to any tangible progress, by which time everybody thought the recession would be over. So. Uh, uh, I mean, your, your skepticism is appropriate, but quite often when government deceives us, they're also deceiving them, themselves. Well, you know, as the former chief economist to the governor of California, were there lessons that you learned that you can share with us? About California? Yes. Oh, sure, absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, uh, I'll, um, just a little bit of uh, context here. Uh, in the 80s, California boomed, um, and once the uh, Berlin Wall came down and defense spending started dropping rapidly, the phrase peace dividend was used a lot, as in the government would need to spend a lot less on, on military and be available for other purposes. Well, that peace dividend didn't affect all places equally. California has a very high concentration of defense contractors and military bases, and so, as does North Carolina, by the way. Uh, and, uh, and so it hit us hard economically, and, and we went into a, a, a steep recession in the early 90s. My role was to design changes in public, changes in public policy to turn things around, and we did. We went from losing 1,000 jobs a day to gaining 1,000 jobs a day. And uh, I'd say what I learned basically was um, that most of the economic textbooks who talk about the suppressing effects on economic activity of things like taxes and regulations are, are, are basically true, because much of what we did was rolling back anti-business policies that had encrusted our, our laws in, in the boom times. But what I also learned, and to talk politically for a second, is that uh, every politician who claims to be pro-economy, many of them may actually just be pro-business. And what's the difference? Well, quite often, and this is the subject of another of my books, uh, some businesses will try to manipulate government, not so much just to help themselves, but also to harm their competitors. And, uh, and it, it takes real vigilance uh, on a Republican's part to make sure that things you do to stimulate the economy don't actually end up advantaging incumbent businesses and throttling competition. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, can, can we blame any of this on any party in particular, Democrat, Republican? Um, I think there's plenty to go around. Uh, I mean, you know, generally, uh, uh, generally over the last 40 years, I mean, think about it. In, in the last 45 years, I think we have run balanced budgets to surpluses two of those years. Now, uh, Keynesian economics would say it's perfectly reasonable to run a deficit in a recession to stimulate the economy. Uh, and I won't bore you guys with the economics on one lesson. Uh, we have not been in a recession for 43 or 45 years. Uh, we have had both Republican and Democratic congressmen and presidents and uh, congresses and presidents in those periods. Uh, generally, what happens is when two parties can't agree on whether we ought to spend more on on welfare or on defense, they agree to spend it on both and just kick the can down the road by borrowing more. So my view is the sins are very, very bipartisan. I mean, I, I can talk about any individual decision and, and, and lay blame for that one, but there's plenty to go around. And as I said earlier, in a democracy, ultimately, we get the, we get the leaders that we, that we elect. No question about that. I'll, I'll tell you, I consider myself a, a conservative, too, but I've come so dissatisfied with the Republican Party that I, I don't even want to – I mean, I, I'm, I'm ready to, to, to declare – being an independent. In fact, you know, you mentioned earlier that the phrase is hate Congress and love your congressman. But, you know, I'm 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 starting to change my opinion to my congressman, too. And he was elected on, uh, you know, the preface of being a, a starch conservative. But, uh, you know, I, I, we're going to dig more into detail on this when we when we come back from break, because we 
right next up to a break here. So uh, hang on with us, uh, Dr. Romero, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of your thoughts, and, and uh, I'll have more questions for you about uh, about your book, uh, Your Macroeconomic Edge. This is the Wealth Guardian Show on 94.5 WPTI, the Piedmont's news, talk, and sports station. WPTI, the Piedmont's News Talk and Sports Station. This is the Wealth Guardian Show with Doug Ray, where it's all about the health, wealth, and freedom you need to live life your way. Our guest today is Dr. Philip Romero. He is the professor of finance at the University of Oregon, and he's the author of Your Macroeconomic Edge. Dr. Romero, in his book, is stating the fact, or or I guess what what I want to say is he's putting forth the hypothesis that the new normal is here, it's going to stay with us, and it's not going to be anything like what we've accustomed to being in uh, in the previous uh, few decades. You know, Dr. Romero, let me get you back in here. We, we've painted kind of a, I don't know, a gloomy picture of, of what's going on in this country. Is America in permanent decline, do you think? I, you know, I, uh, I, everybody who has ever bet against the United States uh, who's ever made a bearish bet in the United States has lost. Yeah, I think we you know, we have capitalism and competition and dynamism in our DNA. Uh, but I do have to say that that uh, throughout our 200 plus years, we have been a young country. And uh, the fact of the matter is, as everybody knows from their own personal experience, young people have more ideas, take more risk, create more innovations. As countries get older, just like as individuals get older, they tend to slow down. So uh, while I am congenitally optimistic about the U.S., I do have to say that we don't really know what a U.S. with a median age of 50, how that's going to compare to a U.S. with a median age of 30. Well, we, you know, we always have heard comparisons of, say, Rome. And in your book, you even cited, you know, all great civilizations have gone away. You, you, you talked about Rome, you, the Ottoman Empire, all of it from internal rot. And i got to tell you, Doctor, I, I see a lot of that going on in this country. Uh, um, there's, it's easy to sell books with you know, bombastic, apocalyptic predictions. And so I try not to go there. But, but I, I mean, I, I am uneasy, too. Uh, uh, but I, I'm optimistic enough to say that I think I think the mid and late 21st century, we're going to become a much more ordinary country. I don't think we're going to disappear, uh, but uh, you know, I think we were we had a privileged position in the 20th, the so-called American century, and I don't believe that that that's going to continue. Uh, it doesn't mean that I think we're going to become a third world nation by any means, uh, because of that that you know that strong dynamic in our DNA. But as I said, as we get older. And if we make the mistake of trying to arrest our decline by making more and more mistakes, like more taxes and more regulation, then that's going to that that will accelerate that decline. Yeah, I don't disagree at all with what you just said there, and I, I don't think we're going to 
vanish overnight either. But my biggest concern as I look at things and look at it with 58 years worth of experience now is I see the country's citizenship starting to lose that, um, you know, that reliance on self-responsibility. I mean, Americans have always prided themselves in going out and and, and working hard and, and, and lifting themselves up by their bootstraps. And now I'm seeing more and more and more Americans saying, hey, I can't, we can't do that anymore. We need government handouts. And that scares me quite a bit, doctor. I, I, I agree with you. I don't, I don't, I don't dispute that. I, I mean, I know just to pick a specific example, I noted that in 08, when you had mass layoffs, of course, and 10, 12 million people unemployed, one of the few up, upward-ticking economic indicators was disability claims on the Social Security system. And a whole network of consultants came into existence to help you claim disability. We are stuck right now, let's be like an economist for a second, we're stuck right now with a low labor force participation rate. That is what fraction of, of able-bodied adults that are actually working or looking for work. And it's, I think, at historic lows. And that's, I think, so essentially because you've got millions of people who have your right, I think, elected to earn basically uh, a subsistence income of government benefits rather than a real income through their own labor. And uh, I'm not a sociologist. I don't know where, when the tipping point is going to hit and when, when more people will see their role as, as being dependent and independent. But we, we certainly have been approaching that day, not 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 receding from it. Well, I can confirm what you just said just in my own little sphere of influence here. I mean, in the last uh, few years, I've had more folks come into my office. You know, I do retirement income planning. That's that's sure. what I do. And, and uh, so many more of them are either applying for or on Social Security disability than I've ever seen in my career. It's, it's amazing. And, and some of them, to be honest, they deserve it. They need it. But others, I don't know. I just when they leave, I kind of scratch my head over that. But yeah, and 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 I guess again, I'm, like I said I'm not a sociologist, but I'm guessing that what a sociologist would look for, or maybe a psychologist, is when when a, a certain fraction of the population switches from, you know, I'm embarrassed about this, I'm ashamed of it, but I have to accept government help temporarily until I get back on my feet. When they switch from that attitude to, yeah, it's mine, I, I deserve this, uh, when enough people start to switch from the first uh, state to the second state is when the decline becomes irreversible. And I have no idea when that is, but as I said, we're, we're definitely approaching it, not, not, not retreating from it. You know, here's another observation. You know, you and I, before the show, we were talking about trends in radio and so forth, and I don't know how things are in Oregon, but here in our area, you know, one of the things I've noticed over the last couple of years is we we have more and more radio ads now for lawyers um, yes. doing Social Security disability as opposed to, um, you know, going out for malpractice and, and, and injury and, and that kind of thing. So it's well, all Well, and wise. I'll just mention, apropos of the topic of the show, I, I think the highest rate of disability, for, Social Security disability fraud in the country is in Puerto Rico. And of course, that's the one, you know, the one state or territory, if you will, that basically should be in bankruptcy. No doubt about it. If you just joined us, today's guest is Philip Romero, professor of finance at the University of Oregon. We have him for the whole show today here on the Wealth Guardians. 
Dr. Romero, I want to change uh, topics just a hair here because I've heard that a lot of American citizens are moving to other countries frequently. Well, should we all just move to Mexico or Brazil? <laughs> well, all, gee, um, what, I mean, in my perception, there are two reasons why people do it, and it's absolutely true. I mean, hundreds of thousands have expatriated in the last few years, <clears throat> and surveys tend to show 5 to 10 million people are at least thinking about it. Uh, one reason is just stretching your dollars. Uh, um, you can live you know, a, an upper-middle-class lifestyle on a lower-middle-class salary in places with low costs, you know, like um, you know, Ecuador or Panama or Costa Rica. Uh, and uh, promoters of, of overseas living constantly trot out expatriates who talk about the fact that, you know, wherever they're living is just like where I grew up in the 50s was. Uh, so there, there are lots of people who are both trying to, they're both economic migrants, and they are, if you will, sort of freedom and and uh, freedom and safety migrants. They're they're migrating to a place where they feel under less threat. Um, I argue in your macroeconomic edge that people should consider it. I don't dispute any of that, and that's a personal choice. But I argue for a second reason they may want to consider it, and I am myself when I retire, which is probably about another fifteen years away. Uh, because uh, I would like to not have my day-to-day expenses be in dollars. Uh, you, earlier in the show, I mentioned that I thought very clearly that once government realized that raising taxes was not going to be the way to solve its, its debt problem because they won't collect the taxes that they project, then they're going to start printing more currency. And more of anything, like dollars, means it's worth less. And dollar being worth less is what you and I see as higher prices. Uh, so um, I, I think probably next decade you will see an increasing number of, uh, of developed world citizens, not just Americans, by the way, Europeans as well, moving to places that are, uh, that are becoming less and less attached to, attached to their home currency so that they're, they're not subject to the inflation that they will be in that home currency, like the dollar. Well, you know, I'll give you my personal point of view about living abroad um, because I've traveled to a lot of countries via the, being in the military and also uh, in, in this business, and I've been in the, some absolutely wonderful, wonderful places, and I've been in some hell holes too. But every single time I traveled and got back, I always kissed the ground when I got back here. I, don't, I haven't been to a place that I, I would, I would want to move to. Now, that may change in the future, but that's me. And I can understand the economic point of view to, to move into places like, you know, Costa Rica, Brazil, where your dollar stretches further. Um, but, you know, that's me. You know, well, I'll, uh, I mean, I'll speak personally, too. I, mean, I, did, a, uh, I did a scouting trip uh, two summers ago, and what I found is the places that looked the most pleasant to live also had the least uh, well-developed social networks, and I, and I know full well, and I'm sure you have a lot of clients and listeners who are already retired, and they will attest that you know, being staying connected, you know, is essential to helping you be happier and live longer. And while you're still working, that happens naturally just through your job. Once you're not working, you can become very, very isolated. And uh, and what I observe, you know, apropos what you're saying, is. A lot of these expatriates who I met when I when I did my scouting trip basically were self-selected hermits, and I think that 
while I have tendencies in that direction, I think it would be very bad for me to to indulge those tendencies because I think I'll you know I, I think I will be less happy and live less long if I become a hermit once I retire. And that would be true anywhere, but it's it's especially easy when you can buy a great house in you know out in the middle of nowhere uh, because your dollar stretches longer. You know, Dr. Romero, we've got uh, about a minute and a half left in this segment. Uh, I'd like to hold you over the fourth segment if, if that's okay with you. Sure, be happy to. Okay. Let's get into some talk now about investments. You know, we're talking about this new normal. We're talking about debt. You mentioned uh, inflation a moment ago. I tell you, the price of gold this week sure has not proved that inflation is anywhere near by. What kinds of investments would you talk to a retiree now about having in their portfolio? Well, the first, the standard advice is still true, which is, I mean, if your portfolio has a heavy dose of equities, stocks, and it should, then you want much of the rest of your portfolio to be things that are not correlated with equities that move in the opposite direction, so that your so that your um, your portfolio is less volatile. Uh, I particularly am big fans of. Uh, uh, I, I quote Jim Carville, the President Clinton's campaign manager. He used to say, "It's the economy stupid." I say, "It's the income stupid." You want to focus on income-producing uh, uh, investments, and I think about things like REITs, business development corporations, or BDCs, or massive limited partnerships, or MLPs. And, okay, and Dr. Romero, I'm going to have I'm going to have to break right now, and we're going to hold that thought and bring you back in the fourth segment and talk more about some of your investments. This is the Wealth Guardians with Doug Rail, 94.5 WPTI, the Piedmont's News Talk and Sports Station. Hi, this is Philip Romero, author of Your Macroeconomic Edge. You're listening to The Wealth Guardians with Doug Ray on 94.5 WPTI, the Piedmont's News Talk and Sports Station. 94.5 WPTI, the Piedmont's News Talk and Sports Station. This is the Wealth Guardian Show with Doug Ray. Our special guest today, Dr. Philip Romero, professor of finance at the University of Oregon and author of the book, Your Macroeconomic Edge. Dr. Romero, we were talking uh, at the uh, end of uh, the last segment about some investments that uh, given this new state of new normalcy, if you will, the new economic environment that we find ourselves in for the foreseeable future, uh, things that uh, you would recommend uh, our clients putting some money into. Let's carry on with that. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, if you if you buy my basic scenario, which is that we will have slower growth and higher inflation, then uh, that changes some of the conventional wisdom about investing. That suggests that that bonds are a bad place to be, for example, because bonds prices fall when interest rates rise, which they would have to do with inflation, for example. Um, happily, there is a class of investments that are designed specifically to emphasize income beyond, besides bonds, and they are generally referred to as alternatives. REITs, real estate investment trusts, business development corporations, which offer floating rate loans to small businesses, or master limited partnerships, which are energy partnerships, and uh, which are energy partnerships. Each of those are um, they are exempt from corporate tax if they pay out ninety percent of their uh, of their profits to investors in the form of dividends. And so they're perfect for 
for people in or near retirement or people who want to rely much more for income than for capital gains uh, to support their portfolio. You know, you mentioned uh, your outlook is for significant inflation, and, you know, I, I think general wisdom would have to say that with the money that's been printed that uh, we should have had that inflation. And in fact, we've seen it in some, some parts of the of the economy. But, uh, you know, gold has been in now, what, a four-year bear market. I mean, it's not right. it's not signaling inflation at all. In fact, it, this week it broke down to multi-year lows. I mean, it's below $1,100 an ounce, I think, it, isn't it? Uh, yeah. What, what, what's going on there? Yeah, I, I, I um, well, uh, I, I've long realized that I'm terrible at calling market <laughs> market inflection points. Uh, I um, the, basically um, inflation hawks like me uh, have definitely been uh, de- undermined over the last few years, and I think the basic reason is because the need for the developed world to deleverage is just so enormous, and it's is so suppressing demand that. The economic growth that would normally cause this money printing to lead to higher inflation has not been happening. Uh, I'm one who continues to believe that inflation may not be a mid-this-decade phenomenon, but a late-this-decade phenomenon. And that's convenient because that way uh, you can't, I can't be disproven until about year 2020, 2019 or so. But I still believe that for somebody planning their retirement over the next couple of decades, it would be foolish to expect inflation to stay low for the whole period. For one thing, when inflation hits, it tends to hit services that retirees use, like health care, especially heart. Health care is inflating at three or four times the rate of the, the general rate of inflation for decades now. And so retirees are, are, are overexposed to inflation, not just because they have fixed incomes, but also because they heavily buy the things that tend to inflate the fastest. So it ain't happening now. I, I completely uh, concede that, but I still think it's a, a serious concern for retirees over the next couple of decades. I don't disagree with anything you said there. Um, you know, my twenty, almost twenty-eight years in in, in this business, uh, and the experience I've gotten tells me that uh, everything that's gone up will go down, and everything that uh, went down <laughs> will go up. I mean, you don't have sure. to have an MBA to to, to realize that. So in that context, are stocks now, are they overvalued, undervalued? What's your opinion? Well, I believe, well, two comments. I believe that stocks are, uh, are overvalued, but I do have to immediately say, I've been saying that for 18 months. <laughs> you know, and, and I don't know where the Dow was when I first called the market top, but it was probably at least two or 3,000 points lower than it, or lower than it is now. Um, just as I said earlier that I thought the late 20th century was a unique historical period, uh, likewise, I think we're in, we're in uncharted territory here. The, you know, the classic trader's line is don't fight the Fed, and that has completely been proven the last couple of years. The Fed is levitating this market. It's the ultimate anti-gravity machine. Uh, uh, I'm just one who believes that, that uh, I may be too early in calling the top, but I'll probably be way too late in calling the bottom. And so, uh, uh, so I'm uh, I'm not incre- increasing my equity exposure. I'm trimming it back. I, I I think I think stocks are being artificially inflated, and when they fall, they'll they'll fall hard. Don't disagree with that. I'm, I'm the same way. I've, I've 
felt now for for a couple of years that they've been artificially inflated. In fact, I thought that uh, that downturn in 2011 was going to be the uh, the end of the run. But yeah, uh, so did uh, I, right. was I surprised? I mean, really surprised. Um, so let's then let's talk about Obama's economic policies. What, what are what's your opinion on on that? Boy, big big question. Um, I think this president. Well, before I say that, this president is, and, and Democrats in general, and to some degree now Republicans, but mainly Democrats, have been absolutely right in recognizing that a rising tide has not lifted all votes, that for about the last 30 years, income gains have gone almost exclusively to people at the top of the spectrum, and the vast middle class have really not risen, have not progressed economically very much at all. And that those are facts, and they're athlete, and they are fundamental to the American social contract, and so they're very right to recognize it. I think they're completely wrong in emphasizing wealth wealth redistribution, uh, uh, taxing uh, higher income people more, and just hoping that somehow it'll trickle down to the uh, to the middle class. I, you know, I think is a very bad idea. It, it's it's a great risk that you will. You'll get fewer golden eggs if you redistribute them as opposed, as opposed to trying to create more. For example, um, one I've been, I've been working on a lot recently myself is the Affordable Care Act. Health care has, uh, has two basic problems. One is it has inflated much faster than the, uh, than the CPI, and the other is that as a result, tens of millions of people are priced out of the health care market. So you had a cost problem that causes an access problem. Obamacare only dealt with access. It didn't deal with cost. And it dealt with access by saying, okay, you 40 million people will get subsidies from the government to pay for your health care. Uh, so all we've done is added to demand for health care, adding to inflationary pressures, without actually dealing with the cost situation very much at all. So I, I'm not a big fan of... Uh, I, I'm, I'm a fan of this president's recognition of some of the key problems and his courage in trying to deal with them. I think he's been really blinkered in his, in his approach to, to trying to solve these problems. Well, we're getting pretty close to the end of the show. I really appreciate you being on uh, with us today. So if you would, uh, for me, in one paragraph, summarize your basic thesis. Um, if you learned financial planning in the 20th century, um, everything you learned was right for that period. However, we're in a new normal now. New normal means, in particular, don't count on capital gains, go for income. <clears throat> don't count on low inflation, go for infl- inflation projection protection. That means, for example, in terms of tax strategy, emphasizing Roth. In terms of investing, emphasizing income like alternatives. Outstanding. So, uh, Dr. Romero, tell uh, the audience where they can get a copy of your book, Your Macroeconomic Edge. Yeah, thanks. The book is called Your Macroeconomic Edge, Investing Strategies for the Post-Recession World. It's available on Amazon. Search on my name, Philip Romero. And your listeners may be interested to know that uh, that early next year I'll have a new one coming out called Seven Steps to a Stress-Free Retirement, which will be an expansion of these themes. You know, I was about to ask you about that book coming out because I want to uh, book you uh, for another show when that uh, when that book Love hits to. the market. Love to. The uh, don't have a, a formal date yet, but I'm guessing it'll be the first half of 2016. 
Very good, sir. Thank you so much for taking the time out to be on the Wealth Guardian show with uh, me, Doug Ray, today. Um, have a great day. Appreciate you having me, and we'll look forward to talking next year. Thank you, sir. All right. Well, there he goes. That was a great interview with uh, Dr. Romero. He he and I think quite a bit a lot uh, alike. Uh, I'm glad to hear him uh, emphasize that uh, he believes that getting uh, retirement tax-free income is is a, a proper approach. Not only a proper approach, it's a must approach. Uh, he believes taxes are going to go much higher in the future than than they are now. I want to remind you, next show, next Saturday, we are going to devote that show to looking at your 1040 return and taking a deep dive into how to create tax-free income from some of the areas that the government actually gives you a break in your income tax. Did you realize my buddy Van Miller has a 9815 rule, and that basically says that uh, you can earn up a couple 65 can earn up to $98,000 a year and still be in the 15% tax bracket which means that you have zero tax on qualified dividends and capital gains we're going to talk about how to play all that in together in a fully uh, thought out and uh, well mapped retirement income plan this is the wealth guardians with Doug Ray on 94.5 WPTI the Piedmont's news talk and sports station Thank you.